Hello and welcome to Phoenix Foundation, an episode-by-episode podcast review of CBS's action-adventure series MacGyver. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're tackling Season 1, Episode 6, Trumbo's World. Now, this episode originally aired November 10th, 1985. It was directed by Donald Petrie, who we previously had direct the opening gambit, The Junkyard, um, seen before The Golden Triangle. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was written by Stephen Kandel, who also wrote The Gauntlet. Um, and the opening gambit here is also directed by Lee Katzen. Uh, let's get into discussing that uh, in brief. The uh, the opening gambit here was the, the Basque. Right, the Basque terrorists who had uh, kidnapped a scientist and MacGyver sent in to rescue her. And then the actual plot involves a siege of deadly soldier ants on the march in the Amazon towards a cocoa plantation owner who's uh, refusing to leave. Right. And actually, before we get into the episode, I wanted to share, we got a, uh, a listener email from Ben Erickson okay. about uh, the ant agonist in this episode. That's his joke I'm stealing. And again, I'll, I'll just quote him word for word here. Um, he explains that uh, while the Amazon is host to a wide number of army ant species, they aren't known to pose much more than a nuisance to something as large as an adult human. And uh, he explains that the, the insects in the episode have much more in common with the driver ants of Africa. And these ants, I guess, also known as siafu, are aggressive, relentless, and have the capability to inflict painful, unyielding bites with their mandibles. So strong is their bite that tribesmen have been known to use them as a sort of natural suture while in the brush. They literally have the ants bite both sides of a wound closed and then snap off the body. So it's just the head holding the wound closed. So that's kind of crazy. And uh, I guess if, if these actually were driver ants, then Trumbo probably would have been better off leaving with his workers because uh, driver ants can actually be huge predators of pest species, and a lot of African villages will allow them to pass through their fields and perform exterminator services. So I thought that was an uh, interesting uh, factoid to include. Absolutely. So again, thanks for that, Ben. And uh, if anybody else, any of our other listeners, would like to send us uh, comments or questions about uh, upcoming episodes, uh, you can always reach us uh, on our website, phoenixfoundationpodcast.com. All right, where were we? So the Basque opening gambit... I felt like was kind of almost a, a repurposing of the original opening gambit where um, MacGyver saves the pilot from an encampment of these uh, potentially Mongolian soldiers. Yeah. Um, but it's it's essentially the same thing. He, he comes to this village where this girl has been kidnapped. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a very good explanation as to why she was taken hostage in the first place. Well, they, he, he, he surmises that uh, she was taken because she is a scientist yeah, and even though she's a geologist. Yeah, they don't he, know the difference. He's just assuming that the the villagers here, just any scientist is is capable of building weapons, and so she'll yeah. build weapons for us. Um, not that they have any machining technology yeah, or exactly. anything. It's a very, like, rural village. Um, but so he breaks in, uh, he finds this woman, and he helps her escape from the village, basically... Um, first, first he needs to sneak her out of the place. Yeah, but his sneaking in plan is what gets me. Yeah, he, he just takes it really off doesn't all, make any sense. He takes off all his clothes and just puts a towel around him, and uh, just kind of like meanders around the, the camp, and everyone just kind of kind of like, oh. But look. he's the only white guy in the whole camp. Yeah, like, and he's got a mullet, and he's just wearing a white towel naked. That that, that is a big part of his distraction. 
Oh, okay. Is that while he's kind of meandering around through the camp, he goes over to the the stove or the the campfire where they have a stew going. Uh, He makes a comment about his mom being the great kitchen experimenter and uh, that she even made a Basque stew, but it was better than this. Yeah. But during that time, he lays the pipe for the hot water supply to the shower over the over the fire, fire which is like oh my gosh that's that's already a horrible thing to do to somebody yeah um so he then makes his way to her cell which he knows exactly where she's staying somehow yeah i i, I seem to recall him doing it there's an insert shot where he sees a guard there but then there's no guard when he gets to it yeah um and he very conspicuously like climbs up onto a building and removes a piece of of support structure from one of the huts and then uses it to, cause the door has got a lock on it, like a yeah. big old like tra- railroad train lock. And, uh, so instead he just, you know, pirates, of the Caribbean style lifts up the door off the hinges. Right. So that he doesn't have to undo the lock. Yeah. Um, so of course he runs in there and the, the scientist woman is already like, Whoa, there's a naked guy coming after me. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell she's already worried, but he identifies himself and she instantly hugs him. Still, wouldn't go that far. Yeah. Wouldn't go f- as For far as... For the naked as... guy. <laughs> I wouldn't give him a hug right away. Um, and so... But in the hut, there's clothes. So he, he changes into some... Uh, to some, like, overalls. Like, some kind of, like, casual wear. And uh, starts his next plan. Like, he grabs some rope and douses it in kerosene. Now, he does this without knowing that he's going to need the rope... For his escape, or at least that he would need to douse it in kerosene in case they try to use it. But it wouldn't make sense for the kerosene to be right at that cliff face either, so I guess he yeah. had to do it here. Uh, it seems like something he should have like maybe just brought along with him in case I need it, and then yeah, applied it at yeah, the cliff. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, but he soaks the rope in kerosene, and that's the only plan, is this rope and the hot pipe. Yeah. So he's waiting for someone to go and get scalded by the hot water pipe. Yeah. Which happens perfectly on time, and and ah, it's a, it just freaks me out so much. It really freaks me out the concept of scalding Steam, hot water yeah. coming out of your shower, and, and unexpectedly, unexpectedly, like you're yeah. standing underneath it. You haven't, you know, I I am so paranoid of this that I, like I turn on the shower and like test the water. <laughs> I don't I don't just get in and turn on the water. Yeah. I never do that. You know, the shot reminded me of um, the scene in uh, the Mummy. When they first crack open the rocks oh, and that yeah. the hot steam with the salt and everything comes out yeah, of them. Yeah, salt acid. Yeah, that 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 scene just reminded me of that, where it's just like you just see their skin like bubbling over. Yeah, because that's what's gonna happen when you have scalding hot water. Even if like your reaction time is fast. Yeah, you're still not... gonna have third degree burns over yeah. a lot of your body. And uh, and this guy comes out of it like just mad, and everyone else is laughing at him. Yeah, they're just cracking up. It's like you could see that with steam, like that's killer. Yeah. Um, so they use a the distraction and get away, but they're spotted on the way out. Right. And uh, they use the rope. And Dr. Gates has a, the, the scientist has this really great reaction. She's, when he throws the rope oh, down the Oh, when they the get cliff, to the cliff? Yeah. Yeah, he, she throws the rope down there and she goes, But I can't do that. I, I don't know how to do that. It seems like maybe she should have been saved for a full episode because she actually has some acting chops that she yeah. on display here. But uh, she very, very well, she, she sells 
that she does not know how to repel yeah. and she's not comfortable doing it, which I think a person would say in that, in that yeah. Oh, yeah. situation, like, I, I, I don't know how repel. to do this, so we need to find another way down this face because I'm not going to be able to do that. And MacGyver basically says, no, you're going to do this because it's the only way out, yeah. so get ready. But uh, there's a great, like, kind of a Heights, MacGyver's Fear of Heights reference when she goes, do you know how far down that is? And he goes, nope, because he's got his back turned <laughs> Yeah, because he's just not going to look. Yeah. Uh, so they climb down and immediately some of the Basque start following him down the rope, which he Home Alone 2 style lights on fire. Right. Uh, Why and does this it... rope smell funny? <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Harry, are you wearing aftershave? <laughs> <laughs> um, so they quickly climb up the rope, and uh, MacGyver grabs one of the rubber rafts that's down below the river. And, but, and while she's getting and paddling away, he grabs a ro- spool of barbed wire and just throws it. it into this inflated boat. Yeah, it it just made me like, oh, ah. um, <laughs> uh, but it doesn't pop. Um, but they manage to get a little bit of headway on them, and then run the spool across a, a section from bank to bank as a as a means of snagging their boat. Which is a, a trick he used in Thief of Budapest too, with the tractor that's pulling the, the razor yeah. wire across yeah, the, exactly. the yard, um, as sort of just like a clothesline technique. Like, up, oh, you can't come after us because there's a barbed wire chain through the. Yeah. But now it's through the river instead of just out in the open. Yeah, and l- luckily they left it loose enough that it just caught the boat, didn't decapitate the, <laughs> yeah. the sailors with that's the razor true. wire. Uh, and the, he makes, I think he makes a really like a pun of like. Oh, uh, those guys are all washed up. <laughs> right. And then that's the, the end of this opening gambit, right? Yeah. This, as far as, far as we can tell, is the last episode uh, to have any footage featured uh, in the show. We'll see a plane in the next episode right. that, that uh, serves as the Richard Dean Anderson identification. Like, he Plug leans in. over the plane and smiles. Um, but uh, that shot is not actually in the episode. Right. And presumably is not in any episode. But... It's still crazy that they shot six episodes and had enough, and from those six episodes, were able to splice these really popular opening credits. Like it's, yeah, it's a really entertaining credit sequence that shows a variety of things that he does because because the opening gambits are so different. And the, the I mean, they they do add things uh, over the years. I know Dana Elkar when he comes in, he gets yeah, a couple shots car, yeah. and. Uh, and there's a few other ones, but for the most part, like these these six episodes still have at least a shot. Yeah. In in the final opening credits, like you know, a hundred and some episodes right, down the line. Right. So, um, yeah, you're right. It's it's surprising that they were able to to encapsulate so perfectly who MacGyver is in in just these first few episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should also mention that a lot of this episode is taken from directly taken from uh, Byron Haskins' The Naked Jungle from 1954. Which is also about soldier ants? Yeah. It's, well, I don't know if they're soldier ants, but it's definitely about ants attacking. It was based on some short story that was written a long time before. But it's interesting that we're going back to the 50s now to yeah. borrow footage. <laughs> it's like further and further back. Um, but uh, it still looks amazing, you know, this, the giant mat shot of like this this whole colony of ants moving toward them. Yeah, and uh, like all, all the like the tables and things covered in ants. Like, I mean, it looks just like powder. But you know, if if you've ever dealt with an ant infestation, that's kind of just what it looks like. It's yeah, just, it's just yeah. a big mass of of insects. You can't tell what it is. Yeah, it's frightening. And this was um, one year after he directed War of the Worlds. So um, from and, invasion to invasion. <laughs> right. And uh, this was uh, Naked Jungle was with Charlton Heston was the lead. Oh, okay. And then we move into the full episode. Yeah, the full episode uh, 
starts off with MacGyver arriving in the Amazon. Uh, and uh, he, he's not greeted by anybody. Like, he's just arriving there, and he has to Seems actually... like he's kind of surprising his, his friend. Yeah. Um, uh, Charlie, uh, Charlie Alden. Who's, uh, Charles Alden. Charles Alden. He's the, MacGyver's <laughs> Only the MacGyver calls, calls him Charlie. Him. Uh, but he is an ornithologist and a uh, study of birds, for those, <laughs> for those who don't know. Um, which I was also very surprised that Trumbo knew right away. I don't know. Ornithology I is I think not... Trumbo seems like a smart guy, though. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, found, I knew about what ornithology is, but I didn't know. When I first found out what it was, I was just like, that's birds? It was yeah. a, like a surprising thing. Yeah. I'm dumb. Anyway... <laughs> Uh, so he meets up with uh, him at the in a very like Jurassic Park, Dotson kind of. Yeah, they're sitting at a table outside <laughs> yeah, a, a little, small like. Yeah, he he he's all ready to go in like full, uh, you know, Amazon traveling, you know, pith helmet and you know, beige, uh, I don't know, cargo pants and everything like that. Yeah, like, he looks he, like Teddy Roosevelt to me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He 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 looks like he's a classically adventurer. trained adventurer. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he tells MacGyver that there's something wrong in the jungle, that all these birds and animals are fleeing. And MacGyver says this weird quote, here be tigers and unknown beasts. And it's in quotes in the subtitles. I don't know what that's supposed to be a reference to. I tried to look it up. Uh, I couldn't really find anything. There was a Ray Bradbury story that called here be tigers. And, uh, there was a Weird references to this is but from Google that I got this. Yeah. Weird references to poems by Lenore Kendall, which I tried spelled to spell the same way as the writer for yeah. this episode. And so Steven. I was like, I was wondering if there was some kind of connection, but I think ultimately it might just be things on old maps that right. say, where they didn't know what might be there. Yeah. They just would here 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 be dragons here, here be, be monsters. Yeah. Yeah. But it's weird that it was in quotes. I was if anyone yeah. knows. Well, it's also possible that just whoever was doing the subtitles for Netflix assumed that it was a quote from something. That could be. Because it doesn't come off as just something MacGyver would be saying. So it maybe they just interpreted it as, this is a reference to something, so I'll put it in quotes. I don't know what it's from. Well, when I looked up the exact quote, the only thing that came up was the MacGyver, MacGyver episode. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so but that's that, funny. that kind of made me wonder. Yeah. But uh, hey, if anyone out there knows what that's from. So they, they get a boat, and they I guess they charter a boat because there's someone else driving. Yeah. Because uh, they'll be driving their own boat later. Uh, but uh, A smaller one. Yeah. So they head up river to a small outpost where they're greeted by the local commissioner, who I guess is, I guess, the law of the area. I guess he's, I, I don't, I really don't understand his job description. He just says he's, he is the law. Yeah. So I don't know. It kind of feels like he's he's a sheriff that you have to make an appointment with, yeah, <laughs> and go see him if you feel you've been wronged. Right, because because this is out in the Amazon. There's not much civilization. Yeah, there. he doesn't he doesn't go out on patrol or anything. Right. Um, and uh, so MacGyver asks about Trumbo, who he had, he had heard the name mentioned in town, uh, in a scene that's not depicted. And uh, the commissioner proceeds to tell him the stories about Trumbo. Is like. He's a hard man. He doesn't want to do with any be anybody but his cocoa plantation. He doesn't respect me as the law here. And... Yeah, he's his own law. Yeah. So, uh, but they also can't. The locals are also disturbed about what's going on in the jungle. Yeah. Built really building up. All the, all, the whole time they're on the river, we just see herds of animals and birds flying away from the direction that they're and, going. And each time, uh, Charles is making a note of like. These animals shouldn't be here. They should be a hundred miles east of here. I don't know yeah. what they're doing. And, and it's all stock footage, like right. of, of of animals. 
but but it does seem like a big portion of this they're actually on a boat in a river with mm-hmm. the with the cast um but then as once once they're on their way to finding trumbo specifically it seems like there were some lines that maybe got left out when they were shooting or right. maybe there was unusable sound or maybe they decided that it wasn't clear enough why these people would work for trumbo and so right. they had to do like these, pickup. these uh pickups or like sort of um reshoots um but it, there's really rough looking uh green screen, screen. yeah or probably bad. blue screen at the time yeah um, but it, it's bad comp bad comping yeah like, really bad just... comping of of uh of MacGyver and uh, Charles on the boat, um, just sort of discussing why these people would bother to work for Trumbo in the face of like whatever this oncoming danger is. Um, and MacGyver proposes that maybe they're just too scared to leave. Like they're just as scared as everybody else around seems to be of, yeah. of Trumbo's vengeance. So uh, while they're going up the river, they go through some like tree branches and stuff and they come across like a spooky, spooky mask. Yeah. They almost what? crash into this sign that's, it seems to just be stabbed into the riverbed. Yeah. Um, which at, at first I was like, oh, are they pulling up to a dock? Like, it looks like they're pulling up on hard land, but it's just stuck in the ground. In the mud, yeah. Yeah. And then <laughs> and Trumbull's all, the sign said keep out. Didn't you see the sign? It says keep out. And it's like, no, it says spooky face. <laughs> like, it doesn't, <laughs> there's no words on the sign. The picture's worth a thousand words. There's no words on there. <laughs> there's no words on there. We'll do it live. <laughs> Do it live! I can, I'll write it and we'll do it live! I'll tell them live. <laughs> I'll tell them live. But <laughs> thing like sucks. <laughs> I like this whole concept that Trumbo <laughs> set up a sign. And all, There's no words on it. That's okay, I'll tell them live. <laughs> uh, so they, yeah, they pull up and they get, they get shot at. Which, shot. actually, the commissioner warned them. Well, last time I saw Trumbo, he shot at me. Yeah. Like, so they yeah. should have expected this. But it, it is clearly a warning yeah, shot. Yeah, it's a warning shot. It hits the water, and Trumbo seems like a guy who knows what he's shooting at. Yeah, and so, like, but Trumbo's there. Like, he's, they, they were somehow aware of them coming. Perhaps someone up upstream told them. Yeah, there's a it. whole there's a whole group to greet them as they yeah. as they come rolling a up A couple of gringos place. on their way down. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, he tells them, you know, you can't come in here get out of here i don't want you around I'm not taking letting you go but not just not letting you in so macgyver looks over and hears like this pump that's running really rough right and it's a, and so he kind of offers like oh maybe i'll fix this pump for you he's kind of like the car talk guys he can he can diagnose oh you got a broken piston i can i can hear it from this boat that I'm yeah, yeah. i can hear it over this boat motor <laughs> yeah <laughs> over our broken piston and you know, and trumbo's like oh well you know that's not gonna change my mind but macgyver's like okay well i'll do it anyway who knows what happens? He's kind of guilting him into it. Yeah. He's just like, oh, well, you know what? I'm going to fix your, your broken stuff regardless of whether or not you help us in return. Yeah, because I'm just that kind of guy. Yeah. So uh, the next act is MacGyver. The whole act is pretty much just MacGyver repairing the piston. It's a really short segment of the show. Um, yeah. But he finds the two broken pieces and uh, wants to weld them, but Trumbull says, oh, the arc welding gas is all out and so, so you it was useless for you to diagnose this problem because right. my welder's Broken. out of commission uh so macgyver then decides to use a, a generator and some half dollar uh 50 you know 50 cent pieces uh which you don't really see anymore these days it's 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 interesting that he had them even in the 80s i don't think they were all that common maybe not 
I, it's not something he would have just had on him, definitely. Yeah, but they're uh, big because they're big. Yeah. It's awkward to carry fifty cent pieces. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, he clips them to the uh, one end of the positive lead of the generator, and then he has, I guess, assuming he has the the other lead on the piston. Right. And so he that so as they're making contact, they're sparking and melting the the metal. So he's and, using it as a like an electro chemical yeah. arc welder. Yeah, exactly. And Trumbo's very impressed uh, by his ingenuity. And uh, we also meet Luis, who's Trumbo's adopted son. He found him in the jungle. Right. After, like, one of the other rival tribes. And it's not attacked. entirely clear what age he was. Like, he could have been a baby or he could have been a child. Yeah, but but, I was, I'm assuming a toddler. But his father was killed and his mother was, was taken by uh, an opposing tribe. Right. And he was basically left behind. Uh, so Trumbo kind of, like, took him in and gave him gave him a place. Uh, but in complimenting uh, MacGyver's ingenuity in, in this arc welding machine, he, he basically makes the point, like, that's the power of the American dollar. Well, half dollar anyway. <laughs> but it's two of them, so it's, it's, two of them. it, it like, is the American dollar. Good job, MacGyver. Overall, it's one dollar. Yeah. Uh, so Trumbo invites them to stay the night, uh, and uh, kind of Trumbo laments his his past, like... You know, his wife died here. But then Char- Charlie... This is like, where... Yeah, I feel like Charlie's sort of veering into, like, Asperger's type uh, area. He's not with, reading the room. Like, he doesn't know what's happening around him, and he's just offended by everything. And, uh, like, Trumbo's trying to give them, like, a little bit of his soul here, explaining, mm-hmm. like, look, I came here. I made this place for myself. I, I lost my wife. He says, I, ever since my wife died, things have been really hard. Yeah. And Charlie just lunges in with... Mr. Trumbo, won't you reconsider and provide us with a guide? <laughs> like, immediately, just like, not, oh my god, I'm so sorry, like, I didn't realize your story. <laughs> just like, help us. <laughs> he couldn't even do it quietly. I'm so sorry. Could, could you please be our guide? <laughs> yeah. But he, he has a bunch of lines in this episode where he's just like... Well, certainly he must care about the ecology of the region. This is a scientific expedition. And he yeah. just, like, constantly, like, ruffles his own feathers. Yeah, he, he's very... He's very angry and just wants to get the answer. He doesn't yeah. care what he has to do. He wants the answer to this problem. If you're not answering his question, then you didn't say anything. <laughs> uh, so then Trumbo offers, probably feeling awkward in the situation. Yeah. It's like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take you myself. Jeez. Yeah, he's he basically says, you know, if if this dam didn't function and this and this pump didn't function the way they're supposed to i wouldn't have water in a drought and i wouldn't be able to defend myself from a flood mm. and so i owe you a lot actually and i and i understand that i'm still not willing to risk my own people for it but i'm going to go ahead and guide you myself yeah. because i'm not going to i'm not going to even though later he seems perfectly willing to risk his own people to defend his land yeah um, but he's he's not interested in sending them as guides away from his own his own territory. Right. They got they got fields to work. Right. Uh, so the next morning they head further up the river, presumably on foot, because um, they they are in the jungle on foot. Yeah. But I don't know if they walked the whole way, or if they went more by boat. It's not really clear. Yeah. Uh, and they come across. That's when they they finally see what is causing all this menace, and we hear it as an audience. Of this weird little... Yeah, it sounds like a, a cat that's, like, slowly melting. But uh, it's apparently ants. Yeah, billions of ants, their combined sound. I even feel like billions must be an underestimate, because uh, MacGyver describes the swath as being two miles long and ten miles wide. Yeah. Which is... That has to be 
bordering on a trillion. Like, I feel like a billion ants, you wouldn't even see it from this distance. Yeah. It's, but you can see that, you know, the, there's a beautiful map painting of, like, the dirt and the tree line where you can see, like... Right. You can see they're like, eating everything. Yeah. They're, they're eating all plant life, all animal life. Yeah. They're it's just barren land with water running through it beyond yeah. this ant uh, and they hear screams from a nearby village of the villagers trying to burn and swat and pound the ants, and they're covered in ants. And, right. Uh, and inexplicably, a woman has been trapped under a canoe, <laughs> a canoe, which is like the first prop they could think of that that would weigh something that Indians might have. Yeah. Which Trumbo constantly refers to these Amazonian uh, tribes people as, as Indians. Indians. Um, but uh, but they're not. No. Um, Columbus was mistaken. And these are these are individual tribes that have their own names, none of which are disclosed. Yes. Um, but yes, so a woman has somehow become trapped under a canoe, and none of her fellow villagers have offered their assistance. Yeah, in. no one's helping her. Yeah, like, not not until seconds after MacGyver and his friends step in. Yeah, but. it seems like this is a very small village. You're probably very knowledgeable of the people of it. Yeah, they have to know her mm-hmm. personally, like unless this is like. You know, this is like a scarlet letter situation, and this woman was being publicly punished by canoe, and like the, she's only screaming because the ants are close. She's she, been she, under this canoe for weeks. She, she had been aiding the ants. <laughs> and suddenly, she's a collaborator. Hi, for one, and welcome our new ant overlords. <laughs> but yeah, so um, MacGyver and uh, Trumbo immediately set to work helping her. Um, Charlie's mm-hmm. kind of <laughs> supervising. Yeah, Charlie's taking. He's pretty pictures. useless. Of everything, and they, cr- they create- and smiling about it the whole time. These these people's homes are being destroyed. Yeah, people are being eaten alive, and Displaced. he's just taking pictures. And it seems really like excited about like the package he's going to get to send off to Life magazine. Yeah. Um, so MacGyver and Trumbo rig up a winch. Uh, he's yeah. like a stick of bamboo and some strings. Yeah, they, they, they throw some rope around of and like around the canoe, and they just basically put a one solid piece of bamboo in the middle, and they just keep twisting it until it winds winds and lifts the canoe right. off the ground enough for them to slide around yeah but and, uh, and it seems like the woman could have pulled herself out at that point i mean her arms aren't noticeably yeah. crushed but she's just still kind of laying there like letting them lift it more and more they're, they're almost a foot off of her by the time yeah, other exactly. people come to drag her out from under it she doesn't actually pull herself but, but uh, maybe she's just in too much pain to do yeah, anything. Yeah, you know, her legs looked pretty black. Like yeah, they, were, they did a good makeup job on it. Yeah, like they look, were bruised and yeah. bloody. But, but then when they're helping her walk away, she's not like, they're not totally carrying her. She's limping. Yeah, she's like hobbling. So she is walking on her legs, at least. But in the meantime, Charlie... Uh, uh, he decided get... he had to go to the other end of the camp where the ants are coming from because he wants to get closer shots yeah. of the ants on approach. Even though the camera that he's been using so far seems to have an infinite zoom. Yeah. Like, he's getting, like, down to dirt level where you can see, like, the ants, like, Yeah, you can see their the antennas. Even, even when they're at the top of a mountain looking down at a swath of ants that's, like, ten miles away. Yeah. He's still able to, like, count them on, I, on his lens. I don't think you're going to get better pictures. Yeah. Um, and every time he takes a picture, the camera angle changes. Yeah. Like, like he's switching from one stock footage to another stock footage. Uh. Um, but of course, like he gets covered in ants, as you would, getting right up to the to the front lines. Yeah, and it, it, even at that point, he doesn't seem like he's totally screwed until he, in the act of trying to brush them off, accidentally takes a tumble down a hill into yeah. like straight on into the ants. Yeah, which I feel like you could still just get up and brush them off and walk away from. 
Well, what's weird is I, I'm assuming these ants are venomous in some way, like a fire ant or something. It's like, like that. some kind of a paralyzing bite or something. Yeah, like, like that. or or infect you know, and when you have enough of them on you, biting you simultaneously, that it's just you're too in, much. It's for your like body. a shock to your system. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because like it, it doesn't take him long to be uh, considered lost. Because yeah. MacGyver and Trumbo run over there, but MacGyver's holding like the bamboo. Yeah, he really from the from the time we hear Charlie scream MacGyver to MacGyver getting to the top of the hill screaming back to him, it, maybe ten seconds had passed. Yeah, maybe not even that. But he really didn't want to let go of that bamboo piece because the weight of that canoe, like just as soon as he let go, is like yeah, it starts helicoptering out of control. Yeah, it like, looks like it's gonna clip one of them, but yeah. it, it doesn't actually hit anybody. He, he he's really concerned about it coming back and hitting him in the yeah. face. It wasn't a prop. Like I mean, it wasn't. It was a prop canoe, but it wasn't like just being held up. Yeah, there was there was no like safety system for this thing to not cut people. Yeah. Also, this woman was pulled out of the canoe maybe two minutes ago. Um, they could have immediately dropped that stuff and gone to see where Charlie was. Yeah. Well, but they, for some reason, they they're still standing there holding it. Um, but yeah, they they get around the corner and were sort of given in, inserts of. Uh, these glasses on the ground and yeah, the, the covered hat in covered in yeah. ants and and uh, the implication is that Charlie is already a lost cause. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not making any sounds at this point. He's, he's yeah, pretty yeah. clearly dead. You see his hand, I think, too, covered in ants. And not moving. Uh, a lot of the things in this episode creep me out. Like, I, I've, I've had serious ant problems in my house before. Yeah. And I just know that when you just see, like, this black swarm of stuff, it's very unnerving. Yeah. And so this episode actually reacts, gets me reacting a little bit. Yeah. Now and then. Uh, especially later on when people are just like covered in them. Yeah. Uh, it's just like, I, I, they must've just, cause some of them are moving. So they must've gotten some, at least a portion of real ants and then just shook them onto people. And they do look bigger than regular ants. Like they're, yeah. I don't, I don't think they're soldier ants necessarily, but they're, they're not just regular ants. Anything for your, your acting. Yeah. So, but obviously distraught that his friend is dead and they go back to the compound and, uh, Trumbo's unwilling to leave, but the village, the other Indians and villagers are. Yeah, his, like, his people are are more than willing to leave. They're they're yeah. already in the act of leaving. Um, uh, they had a moment to set up some brush around the walls to to set a right. flame, but uh, the villagers just said, "Yeah, enough of this. We're out of here." Yeah. And uh, Trumbo tries to convince him to stay. He gives a very like impassioned speech. And when that doesn't work, yeah, when that doesn't work, he he decides to turn a gun on him. Um, and he, at first he blasts a hole in, in one of the canoes that they've yeah. loaded up oh to take gosh. off. And uh, and MacGyver immediately is like, oh, "Okay, hold on a second, Trumbo. Like, this is like this is where the human right violation starts. Like, yeah. you can't shoot at these people because they're trying to flee for their lives." It was a good shot too. Like, I lo- the shot of the shotgun going yeah, off the, in the camera. Canoe. Th- and the camera, like the, yeah. the the orientation, the spatial orientation yeah. of the whole shot was really it, the the eyeline of the gun and the boat matches really yeah. well, um, and it's a pretty cool look too. I'm sure they just had someone with the string like rip that panel out of the canoe, yeah. but it, it looks pretty awesome. Um, but uh, MacGyver like they have like a little little tumble, like a rough and tumble moment where the so the villagers Indians people can make their their getaway yeah and during this trumbo's a little bit coming to his senses because at this point he understands macgyver's a good guy knows what he's talking about and and we're starting to realize like he has a very short temper but that trumbo's not all bad yeah because as soon as macgyver gets a hold of him and he wasn't shooting at the people he was shooting at the stuff that they were loading up which is conceivably his stuff well yeah well and he i think he was damaging the boat yeah because he just didn't want them to escape yeah um but uh, yeah, so 
he he kind of comes to his senses a little bit and he's like you know what you're right they can leave but i'm not gonna leave and i don't care what you say right and i'm gonna see if i can stop these ants and macgyver's like oh god i can't believe we're sticking (laughs) we're gonna stick around and see what happens here so macgyver comes formulates his uh his new set of plans it's three three plans um also before that uh we we have just a quick moment with his uh his adopted son uh, who is like watching the other villagers leave and macgyver kind of points out like you know we could uh we could signal those boats and they could come around and grab you and it's not clear whether he's doing it out of like duty to his like adoptive father mm-hmm. but he kind of looks at the boats and he looks back at macgyver and he's like no this is my home too i i should stay here but it feels like it's out of obligation it doesn't feel like he feels comfortable there or that he yeah. thinks they're going to survive the ant onslaught. He feels like, well, this guy saved my life. The least I can do is be eaten by ants with him. <laughs> like that's kind of how it feels, but I don't know if that's necessarily what they were intending. But yeah, then MacGyver lays out his, his sort of three part plan. Right. The, the pl- plan a is to fill the ditches with water and hope that that just the, the moat discourages the ants. Cause there's already this whole irrigation system in place right. for him to water all the plants. But now those same irrigation systems would work as like a bunch of tiny moats mm-hmm. to keep the ants like separated and force them down to the river. Right. Uh, and plan B, if they were to bypass that, would be to use gas and fire right. to try to burn them out from what they could. Which he was out of gas for the welding machine, but mm-hmm. he still has gasoline Correct. that he can use yeah, he had, to he, torch things. Yeah, he has a small small reserve of gasoline in yeah. MacGyver. Uh, extends it a little bit by thickening it, adding, adding agents to it to thicken it up so it burns, doesn't explode. And also so that it would function better as a flamethrower. Correct. Um, and then uh, plan C, Yeah. Uh, in the event of the first two plans failing, is to bust the dam um, and flood the whole area. Exactly. Or actually not bust the dam. At that point, the point would just be to open the dam. Right, um, right. Yeah. But... Uh, they they don't they no longer have that option when well we'll get to that yeah well we'll see why that he says like yeah we'll we'll have to open up the dam and let it flood the whole area and, and at which point the the adopted son again points out louise points out if you open up the dam like the water level's so high that it's just gonna wash it's it's gonna wash all the topsoil out into the river and mm-hmm. potentially destroy the house yeah so yeah th- that's their fear um and mm-hmm. the reason they would like for plans a or b to work before right. it comes to that so yeah, so they set up, uh, they set up their posts. Uh, they they have Louise man the, the wheel to, lift and, and lower the the floodgate, the floodgate, literal floodgate. Yeah, um, and then they um, man the walls outside the compound by this gas reserve. And uh, so they fill up the ditches, but the ants, with some very interesting footage. I'm not quite sure what it is. I think this is a thing that ants actually do in the wild. Okay, because they they're they're like trimming leaves off the the trees and then using them as rafts. Yeah, they're building a, like almost a bridge out of leaves uh, yeah. that they're kind of pushing together to to push off into the water. But I feel like this is one of those crazy things that ants, ants actually do. do. Like they can make ladders out of their bodies. They can actually build bridges across rivers with mm-hmm. leaves and stuff like that. Ants are crazy. Yeah, they're awesome, but they're crazy. Uh, so they, they try to signal Luis to send out more water, but he's already being overrun by ants on his own. Yeah. And uh, first, um, Trumbo is not willing to accept that um, his his adopted son has run away. Yeah. And he says, no, no, you don't understand. He's too loyal. He wouldn't have left him. MacGyver says, well, then he's dead. And MacGyver's right. 
Yeah. Uh, they can't see it from here, but Trumbo immediately realizes, oh my God, like my stubbornness could have cost my adopted son his life and immediately decides I have to run to save him and sort of jumps down maybe yeah. five feet. And five or six feet. Plus a sprain, sprain his ankle. Yeah, or... he sprains his ankle. He says he, he tore something, but it's it just feels like he gave up weirdly quickly yeah. on his adoptive son. Oh, I'm never going to make it. MacGyver. Uh. He's just like, what? No. Oh, I think I pulled something. <laughs> but it's not pulled. It's tore. But it would be that much funnier if he's like, oh, no, I pulled a muscle. Hold on. I got to. I got to work this hammy for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, his son's being eaten alive across the river. I, I shouldn't have eaten. I should have waited 45 minutes before fighting ants. <laughs> I shouldn't have had such a big breakfast. <laughs> um, but yeah, so now his son is dead. Um, and plan A clearly didn't work because right. these are, these are um, amphibious ants. Yeah, they, they can, they can uh, float over the river. Well, it may have worked had they been able to get more water into the ditches and right. like, in, you know, ruin their bridge. And we, system. we, we do see uh, Louise try and do that for them. Yeah. Cause they're signaling him with a couple of shots, but uh, he's completely covered at this point in ants. Yeah. He's got them all over his arms and legs and, and he's sort of body spasming. Like he can't yeah. even control himself anymore. So he's trying to turn this wheel, but he keeps losing control of it. And it just, it just rolls back shut. So now the dam is completely shut off and they're not right. flooding anything into the irrigation. Um, so it's time for plan B. Yeah. Fire. Which um, they end up taking a, like a garden hose, right? Mm-hmm. That they hook up to this gas tank. And uh, he, he rigs up a small like hand pump. Right. For, you know, so Trumbo operates the pump and uh, MacGyver just, just kind of aims and fires. Yeah. Uh, they, they just kind of set the whole outer wall ablaze yeah. you know they have and the it's brush. not the actual wall because the wall's all like it's stucco like, and, yeah. and yeah it looks like adobe kind of like a fire brick thing mm-hmm. but then uh they had like all the tree branches that the villagers had planted right. around so that's all burning so everything's on fire and we do see it killing a lot of the ants right um, they, they do this like really crazy they just take the footage and like put like a solarized kind of filter over it so it yeah. looks like they're on fire yeah and the and all the while the ants are just like squealing as they're as they're like boiling mm-hmm. alive and um and then we're given kind of a pause after these these fires have run their course, and it's clear we still have a lot of ants to deal with. Yeah. And he basically torched everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's still the inside of his compound, but as far as like his crops are gone, everything's yeah. been burned to the well, ground. Well, burned or devoured so far. Like, yeah. Like the, the if the ants have made it that far, they've gone through the crops and they're making their way. And then he turns to MacGyver and he just gives them like a. Uh, you know, this is this is my livelihood. I've been building this for a decade, and it's 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 completely gone in mm-hmm. an instant. And MacGyver just turns to him. Easy come, easy go. And then you get the most awkward cut in the episode, where Trumbo, in the in the wake of his son's death, cracks up laughing at how hilarious it is that everything in his life has been ruined so mm-hmm. quickly. Um, and in the middle of him laughing, it cuts to the swarm of ants which yeah. at this point like they, they almost indicate that the ant scourge is over with and he's laughing like oh well this is the end of the episode <laughs> and then it cuts to oh more ants like yeah. there's still a lot of ants here we're in trouble uh yeah they actually start coming out of the ground like they had buried themselves yeah to hide from the fire yeah and he's like they do inherit the earth it's like that's a weird thing to say. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're not meek. They're <laughs> they're eating everything. Yeah. So MacGyver says, well, it's time for the last resort plan, which right. is to blow up the dam. But and... at this point, yeah, they, they have to blow it up because 
the original plan was just to open it, but now right. Louise isn't there to actually open the dam, and they have no control over it mm-hmm. from from where they are. So they have to blow it up, and they're out of gas. Right. So uh, time for some MacGyverisms. Uh, <laughs> he uh, he comes up with a plan to. I, I feel like one of the ingredients in this bomb wasn't something that he would have had, but he's like. Time to make a bomb out of what we got. We got fertilizer, all right, and then he takes cellulose from plants. Right. That, that that's all. That's all we get from that. Yeah. And then mix it with acid, and then it cuts to them like he's just with like, a jar oh, well, of acid. I have a big jar of acid. Here's your acid. Yeah. Well, he says a drop or two of acid, and then he dumps like a gallon <laughs> yeah. of acid into the mix. And it's this weird white goop. Yeah. Uh, like I think he calls it nitromanite. Yeah. Like he's a, a chemical kissing cousin of nitroglycerin. Right. It's a it's a little bit more durable. That's not going to explode just from touching it. Yeah, and then uh, then he needs to make a suit of armor, which he makes out of melting a garden hose. Right. And pours it on. Here's the thing that really bothers me: is like he pours it rubber onto sheets of plastic. We've been given no indication that these ants can eat through plastic. Yeah, I think I think you're you're better off with just using the plastic. Uh, but yeah, but then he goes through the time of like tailoring a suit. He's like marking out all the all the seams it's like it's taking too long yeah um all for a suit that doesn't really do him any good anyway because he doesn't seal it up yeah he only seals it up at the feet which i mean like that's obviously the most important part that's the first place they're going to get to yeah but the waist is still open and the head is still open yeah i mean he might as well have been not wearing a mask because i don't think they even could have gotten to the head part yeah exactly like yeah well he does take a tumble when That's he's true. running, and yeah. they, they, they do get so all So he was counting them. on that. He was <laughs> counting on his own clumsiness. Just, just in case I fall. Yeah. Like, ants are slippery once you, once you get a good, like... But he doesn't like, have good visibility in the thing, so... Yeah. Uh, so he gets he makes his way to the irrigation ditch to the dam, but it's too clumsy to work with the helmet on and the gloves. So he's and, forced... But, and by now, he's already got ants on his face, and he's got yeah. ants on his arms. So, so he's forced to, to strip some of it off. In order to work, but you know, you can tell him he's he's in pain, he's yeah, struggling, he's freaking out. Uh, and he he gets the the fuse lit on the dam, mere inches from where the son's dead body was. Yeah, <laughs> I feel so bad for the body being there. But and this uh, is a big explosion too yeah, that we're getting ready really for. Really big. He's he's running away down the ditch, and. Uh, so when the explosion happens, it cuts the stock. The footage must be from something. Yeah, they, they kind of, I, I think a big part of this third plan was built around. They found footage of a guy running through a ditch that's about four to five feet deep mm-hmm. um, as flood water is just clipping him and taking him out. But he's not wearing a shirt, the guy in the stock footage. MacGyver's wearing like kind of a skin tone shirt. So mm-hmm. it, it's a hard to tell it the match works um but he's basically running down this ditch and he just gets hit with this wall of water um and it's coming pretty fast it looks like it's probably coming from the wrong angle yeah based on where the this explosion just happened it's hard to say because if he's following the ditch it could have turned and he's trying to zigzag it's it's he can't climb out because he'd have to put his hands on the dirt and get covered and they're covered in ants yeah but um Either way, he gets knocked down by this water. The water floods up against the walls around the compound, mm-hmm. uh, washes away all the the, the squeaking uh, ants, squeaking ants, and the the burnt trees that they had put up against. Like all these these charred branches are getting washed away, as well as all the trees that should be firmly planted <laughs> in the ground, but uh, we're seeing them tip over and like 
you know the cross beams that they're using yeah. to like nail them to the set floor are like coming up out of the ground <laughs> so you're you're noticing a lot of prop trees getting uh brushed downstream it, 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 a lot of it almost kind of looked like miniatures yeah and i wasn't sure how much of it was that's true it is a lot of water to throw at like this actual it looks like an actual wall that they built so mm-hmm. yeah it seems like it would be an expensive shot if they didn't do it all in miniature but uh you know the flood. The flood subsides. Trumbo's like, "You did it, MacGyver!" But then realizing, "Oh, MacGyver's oh, probably Maga- where dead. is MacGyver, by the way?" <laughs> uh, and MacGyver like kind of comes out of the mud, uh, and Trumbo's all, you, "You know, like you did it. You're like this is great." And uh, looks around at the devastation and says, "Ah, you know, this is this is more than I started with. You come back you, here in one year." Yeah, and look at what you helped create. Yeah. And I I think somewhere in Trumbo's head he knows that his son is dead. And he's blocking it out with, maybe he ran away. He, you know what? He probably he ran probably away. Ran that seems away. like something he'd do. Actually, now that I think about it, he was always kind of traitorous. There's no body. Yeah, there's no body. It, the the body will never be recovered <laughs> because the size of the explosion we see, like the, yeah. this body was launched and thoroughly disassembled. <laughs> there's there's no chance of him finding an identifiable piece of this. Kid. Yeah. Um, but, what a pleasant ending. But you know what, though? He's got his house. He has nothing to eat and nothing to survive on. So he'll probably no, be no, okay. No more workers yeah. to come back. Yeah, they're probably not coming back after that. I mean, there's nothing for them to work. Yeah. All the ground is gone. I mean, like the guy said, all the topsoil did pretty much get washed away. If the, if the trees are getting washed away, then the topsoil's not there. Yeah. So he is starting from beyond scratch. At least he had fertile land to start with. Mm-hmm. He th- he thinks he's in a better place now than he was when he started. Yeah. But I think MacGyver's going to come back f- a year later and find Trumbo's corpse. <laughs> <laughs> that's all that's going to be there. Just a gun in a single shell. And... It turns out he killed himself like later that day after MacGyver <laughs> left. <laughs> um, yeah, and that uh, I think that brings this episode to a close, right? The, yeah, uh, yeah. It, it ends with them just walking back into the compound. Yeah, and Mac- and MacGyver promises he's going to come back because. Um, I guess MacGyver was making regular trips to visit his buddy Charlie, and and uh, he buys all of his tickets years in advance. Yeah, so, one um, year exactly in yeah. advance. So he's uh, he's definitely coming out this way again. He's just going to be surprising a different person this time. Um, so yeah, so that's that's the end of Trumbo's world, the killer ants. So Peter Jerisic, who plays Doctor Charles Alden in this episode, uh, was able to grace us with an opportunity to give an interview. Yeah, and I should actually mention uh, before uh, we play this interview that uh, every podcaster's worst nightmare is that you'll record an interview with a really entertaining guest and the entire thing will be somehow erased, which very unfortunately happened with this interview. But Peter Jurisic, in his infinite generosity, Mm -hmm. agreed to a redo, a re-record of this interview. And I had to mention it on the show because... It was such a nice thing for him to do. Absolutely. It's and, really uh, great. And we really appreciate it. So without further ado, here's our interview with uh, Peter Jurisic, who in the episode again plays Dr. Charles Alden. Remember, only MacGyver calls him Charlie. <laughs> so here you go. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Cool. Great. In MacGyver Season 1, Episode 6, Trumbo's World, you played Dr. Charles Alden. What was the audition process like for that show? Well, as I recall... Um... The show is so brand new. I don't believe I had any audition. I don't. I don't think I ever read for the role. I think uh, it was just handed to me. Um, Henry Winkler was, of course, one of the um, executive producers, um, and Henry and I had just done a television movie together, 
And he had hired me to work in a movie called Scandal Sheet with, with Burt Lancaster. It's one of the best experiences of my career. I had such a great time on that. And when MacGyver got rolling, I think it was the same year, basically, 85, he, he started to, as they say, call in all his chips. So he just started to call people, good actors and friends. And so I was just following his lead. So I don't think there was any audition. I think he said, uh, I have a role. I think you're right for it. Uh, come on over. And, and, and that's, that's how, you know, getting the job went down. Sure. What kind of preparation went into the character of Charles Alden? Well, <laughs> I can laugh when you say that because, you know, uh, I have played, I think I played an astrophysicist on sliders, and I've played a number of scientists, uh, I, uh, you know, investigative uh, kind of scientists in, in uh, um, mysteries, and there's a plane crash movie that I did where I played a pretty scientific guy. And I am, you know, I'm, I'm really, the, you know, the other end of the spectrum, I'm the antithesis of that. I'm the guy who, when you're making cornbread muffins, I'm really struggling with the ingredients and putting too much, you know, baking soda in the recipe stuff. So I really have no credentials uh, from the scientific or math world at all. And so uh, in terms of preparation, I basically concentrated on uh, my friendship, which was set up that we were old friends, which Dean Anderson and I and and, uh, MacGyver and I. And uh, that's the way I went at it in terms of actual preparation preparation for the kind of scientific in the role, I, I, I must admit I sort of skirted around that and didn't lay very much back straight. The other thing is, I, I also have to say, you know, I've, I've done a number of pilots and a number of new series in the series in their first year in my career. And in, in first years of series, people are really struggling to find uh, who are the interesting characters, what is the show really about, is it about relationships, is it about, you know what I mean? I think uh, MacGyver was probably going through that normal process that all shows go through in that first year. I mean, again, Trumbo's World was episode six, not very far in yet. Yeah. And people are still trying to figure out who the characters are and what's important. So, um, yeah, I mean, because that process is going on, trying to prepare or kind of get out in front of it, you really is, there's really little you can do. You just follow your nose through the process, you know? Yeah. See what we end up with. Um, your scenes for this episode were almost entirely exterior and location shots. What What are your memories of the set? Well, I'd like to tell you that that you know there was a great first class trip down to Rio de Janeiro and then <laughs> the long trip into the Amazon. But actually, it was uh, we shot it over where they shot uh, Fantasy Island, <laughs> so it was about an hour drive on a really congested freeway. Yeah. And, uh, but it was completely beautiful, and it was great to do. Um, I think I told you that uh, my girlfriend at the time had done a fantasy island, so she had prepped me on what a great uh, location it was going to be. Yeah. And, and, and it really was. So we had uh, beautiful California days, and it was just uh, my, my memories of the set and spending the time was, uh, you know, was really wonderful. We had good art directors and good set designers, and I created a wonderful set for us to work on. So it was great. Cool. Um, do you recall any memorable moments on set? Um, you know, any anytime I'm on a boat, I think it's well for me personally, it's memorable because <laughs> <laughs> I can't swim very good. And uh, yeah, I think the most memorable times on the set for me, uh, besides the usual amount of laughs and uh, stuff that go on on a, on a set with with good people like uh, like Richard, and you know, uh, I think had to do with being on the boat. 
you know, uh, again, trying to make yourself look like you're uh, comfortable and uh, all's well when actually you're thinking, God, I hope I don't fall off this thing. Who's going to save my butt if I do, right? So those are the most memorable when I want to think back to the, uh, the shoot. We had a great time, and of course, the, the you know the ant scene is uh, you know high in my mind as a, as a memory too. Well, do ants freak you out now that they've killed you on screen? <laughs> Actually, no. I'm not freaking out by ants, but the story I always love to tell is you no know, MacGyver got to be uh, extremely successful. We again, harkening back to that first year idea, no idea that it was going to. You know, turning to what seven seasons? Is that right? Yeah, seven seasons. Yeah, I mean, no one could imagine that. This was the sixth episode. Most pilots, you, if they go one season, you're you're you know you're overjoyed, and the second season feels like a real gift. So seven seasons, who knew? But it was in reruns, and I was on vacation, and I happened to be in Switzerland, and um, I was in a bar. And on the TV behind the bar, that episode of MacGyver started to, because they started to obviously sell it in Europe and it was so successful. Sure. That's that The Trumbo's world started to play. Well, um, I, I probably, you know, kind of made it known to people around, hey, hang on, wait a minute, that guy's right here, you know? Started telling, thinking I was going to become the star of the moment, both with the men and women in the bar for the evening. Sure. And... Yeah, right? Wouldn't you think? You, you know, would think, There yeah. I am on TV, and here I am sitting right next to you, girls, gathered around. <laughs> um, and in fact, the uh, ant scene came up, and it ended up being pretty funny. And people thought, hey, wow, this is a guy got eight So all my <laughs> illusions of uh, them seeing me as the greatest actor ever ended up with, he's the guy who got eaten by ants. So, <laughs> <laughs> so much for fame and good fortune, right? <laughs> right. Um, yeah. In uh, in 1982, you appeared as Crom in the epic science fiction masterpiece Tron. How did you become involved with that project? Um, I know it's hard for you to believe. It sounds like uh, it's just you know a boys' club Hollywood, but uh, or you know boy and girls' club. But I didn't audition for that movie either. Um, I just met Steve Lisberger, who directed the movie and conceived the entire uh, Tron idea. I ran into a party. It was a, a guy who actually appeared in the movie, a fellow named Jerry Burns, who was one of the guards taking Crom into his cell. Yeah. And he was friends with uh, me, and I had done some theater with him years before. And he was also friends with Dan Shore, who ended up playing Ram. And we were just at a, at a party, just a Saturday night party that he and his girlfriend were having at his house in Santa Monica. And Lisberger was there, and Donald Kushner was the other producer, and we met socially, laughed, you know, drinking, having a good old time. And in asking him what he did, he said, I'm doing this movie for, for Disney. And he asked us to be in it. No audition. Uh, I don't know if I would have taken it knowing I was going to have to wear white tights. But, <laughs> um, he didn't mention the white tights at the party. You know? Conveniently left that out. Conveniently, he left that out, exactly. As I always say, the only people who look good in white tights are uh, Romanian gymnasts. <laughs> who are, you know, five, four feet ten and uh, 89 pounds. Sure. I, look like the Hoover, I look like the Hoover Dam in white tights. So. Um, before Tron, uh, you probably had some idea what a scene was going to look like just from being on the set. What did the actual set for Tron look like? 
Tron was, um, you know, a completely unique experience. You know, I joke about the fact that when it came out, it was a bit of a bomb for Disney, and they certainly were not welcoming to the, uh, the whole idea of Tron when we were making it. They were pretty much an animation studio in the classic traditional Disney sense, you know, animators sitting around, and we were the CGI thing. They stuck us on the science fiction. They stuck us on the other end, you know, the far end of the lot. Sure. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know how much they they, uh, they they believed in it going in. It didn't make a lot of money, so it's only, you know, the good marketing values of Disney to take that and turn it into a classic now. But it was, in fact, you know, groundbreaking in a lot of ways, especially for uh, computer-generated uh, stuff. And so when we got to the set, there was nothing there. There was just basically... Uh, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm trying to remember, I guess it was all blue screen, yeah, and all the sets uh, were had to be meticulously cared for and cleaned all the time, and those little white tights that we wore had to be, uh, there were, you know, wonderful costume people all around us keeping us perfectly clean all the time, but when the moment came to do the scene, Steve would call us over to the storyboard, and that was the first time in my career I'd ever seen a storyboard. Everybody uses storyboards now yeah. in all movies. Just about, even if it's just an office scene, they'll somehow have a storyboard. <laughs> they hire somebody to make a storyboard, you know? There's really nothing to look at. But he would show us on storyboard and, and, and you know, uh, com- completely draw it out like cartoons, what we were supposed to do. And then the process became like children playing in the backyard because he just made it up. We just kind of believed we were in the space that he had described and uh, the things around us, you know, like the ring game that Jeff Bridges and I did. Um, you know, there was no rings. There was no ball going back and forth. Obviously, all that was you know, sure. made up. But, you know, Steve showed it. That idea of the first storyboard is, is cool for me to think about. But I was, you know, <laughs> there were no storyboards before yeah. that. Were you shocked by the final product? Um, I remember the uh, the opening night, and yeah, I was shocked by the, pro- the final product. We couldn't, we didn't have any idea what it was going to look like. Um, I don't know whether I thought it was really good or really bad, but I do remember uh, being completely surprised by what it finally looked looked like because we had no idea. Yeah. You know, to us, we were just you know, again, the, the analogy to standing in the backyard and playing cowboys, and then uh, going to the movies and seeing your backyard transformed into a western town. <laughs> With, with, you know, with full effects was really mind-blowing. It yeah. was great. Um, your your longest-running part was of Lana Malari on Babylon 5. Uh, what impact did that role have on your life at the time and your career since? It's not very glamorous to say, but it's, it's incredibly... It's just true and pragmatic. The biggest effect it has is that I was a working actor for five years on a series, so it meant uh, continuity of work, really good work with people that you know, get to know, like, work really well with because you're working every week with them, and then also get to like, yeah. hopefully. If, uh, you, know, you get a kind of family feel. And to say nothing of the fact that you're getting a, a constant salary every week so you get rich, <laughs> and that's great, or relatively rich you know, sure. in this day and age. <laughs> but uh, plenty, plenty rich for me. And and um, that made an enormous change in my life, Uh I had a, um, uh, my son was born during Babylon 5, and I realized, wow, this is great, you know, all this, this work and this money um, for his future. And it was, uh, you know, it was great. It was a great gift, that show. I always have, I'm drawn by, and I've had good luck with writers, you know, uh, Botsko and David Milch writing Hill Street. 
and um, you know Jay Jay Michael Kaczynski writing um, Babylon. I had great writing, so that made it a, a real dream. So the actual work process and the people around me, um, you know, all of those actors, we got, we were we were a blessed cast that we got along. with very little, you know, infighting and competition and stuff like that. And and you know the legacy of science fiction. And what follows after the residuals, and I'm, not, and I'm not talking just about the checks that arrive when they replay it, but the residuals that you could meeting the, the fans and sure, yeah. conventions and stuff like that. I'd never experienced that. That was great. So, uh, and, and, you know, I have to tell you, just yesterday, I think it was, I received a letter from a woman who was a provost at, um, or vice chancellor or something like that, at Ball State University. I don't know, 50 year old woman. And she said, uh, I just wanted to take the time to write you a letter and let you know. Now, remember, this is 20 years after we did Babylon 5. Sure. It's, you know, a long time ago. I don't really remember very much of it. I always joke people do a better impression of, of Londa than I do now. But um, she wrote me a long letter saying how important the series was, that it made a difference to her, and uh, it helped her through you know tough times. And she, you know, I mean, that kind of blows my mind that that's still going on. Yeah, you know, it's a great thing, and very gratifying for me as a person when I get whiny about, gee, I wish I would have done, and why didn't I get, you know, those kind of moments. Sure. Uh, you know, you refer, you get that you refer to that stuff, and you were it's really gratifying. That's so, great. Yeah, Babylon was a big, um, big show and important for me. And what are you up to these days? Um, I, I've been teaching uh, the last couple of years at the University of North Carolina in Wilmington, where I live. And there's a, a, a Screen Gem studio in town. So I've kind of a couple of series like uh, Dawson's Creek and One Tree Hill, uh, Iron Man, uh, the three was just shot here. Uh, you know, there's constant work here. So uh, every once in a while, I pop into a movie here. Yeah. Um, I just finished a movie, a Nicholas Sparks movie called The Longest Ride that I think is going to be out in the spring. I've seen promos for it already. Yeah. And um, just did some ADR work on it last week. So uh, I'm busy and I'm going to shoot a little independent film I, that uh, I rehearsed last night or the night before next week. So I keep myself busy with acting, but you know, I just stopped teaching. This semester is the first year I haven't taught in, I don't know, maybe five years. And because I'm turning 65 this uh, this year, and my son is going off to college, so my wife and I are trying to figure out where we're going in life now. So it's a great time, actually, for me now. Um, and we actually had a few listener questions I thought we might run through real quick. Absolutely. Um, listener Brett S. was a big fan of Sid the Snitch, your Hill Street Blues character, and wondered if you had any hand in nicknaming Sid Thurston the Snitch, or if that was something the writers dreamt up. Um, you know, uh, first of all, now I, I, you know, he gives away his age being a good fan of Sid the Snitch, because that really was back there in my career. But it was, <laughs> again, a big Emmy award-winning uh, show. I was a young actor and really lucky to get on it. And uh, you know, that, that wasn't lost on me when I was doing it. I thought, wow, what a great break for me to be on this uh, fabulous show. But Sid was initially, I think he came on the third season, he was just a, a drug dealer character. And... Um, so he was just called Sid then. I don't think he had any other title. He was just, yeah, like a, like a dealer who got busted after three episodes and supposedly shipped off to prison. But uh, Stephen Bosco took a bunch of us, Dennis Franz and Ken Olin and uh, Sharon Stone and people like that, and took us all who had done uh, episodic 
in um, Guess and Hills Peak and put us on a series called Bay City Blues about minor league baseball. We did a year of that, and that didn't work out after a season. And um, he asked me to come back on the show as one of the snitches. So at first, I think I was, I can't remember what character I was snitching for. It wasn't Dennis initially. But that's when he started to be called Sid the Snitch, because it became eventually Dennis Francis Snitch. And when Dennis and I did the spinoff called Beverly Hills Bunce at the end of uh, Hill Street, then they they actually elevated him and gave him a last name. Yeah. <laughs> we went from Sid to Sid the Snitch to Sid Thurston. He he earned his way, right? Right. And you had said before that um, that this uh, the Sid character was shipped off to prison and Dennis Francis' character was killed, right? Yeah, his his character was actually killed. I was like, I can't remember the character's name, but during that same early uh, the third season, I believe. He guessed it. He had a couple of episodes, and maybe it was, I don't remember, I may be wrong, maybe his name was Benedetto, I don't know, was that his name, NYPD? Anyway, he was a bad cop, Yeah. and eventually he was killed off, and so yeah, they had to, I guess they, they just paroled Sid, and <laughs> Dennis they had to raise from the dead, yeah. they did, as only, <laughs> only TV, as only the TV world can do, right? Right. Forget about reality. Sure, just bring him back. They just changed his name, and he basically played the same character, but then turned him into Bunch. Well, it's funny. We've actually seen that happen a a number of times on on MacGyver so far. There are people that come back as three, four different characters over the course of the series, yeah. Right. And if if I could talk to Henry Winkler at this moment, I'd say, so how come I I got eaten by (laughs) ants, but I couldn't come back? What? Yeah, that doesn't make sense. I was pretty busy at that time. That's probably why I didn't come back. I sure. Was, you know, I was really working hard, so. And uh, another uh, listener question. Uh, cool. Listener Doug Wolf had a question regarding your interactions with Babylon 5 co-star Andreas Katsoulis. You seem the best of friends one minute and at each other's throats the next. As actors, how did you and he prepare for such an interesting adversarial relationship? Well... Uh, you know, uh, Andreas is now, uh, you know, has died and, and said, I really miss him. And um, so it's always, uh, um, I, you know, I, I treasure the time when I can get to talk about it. It's, you know, they say you talk about people and they're alive again for a minute. So I like to, you know, I like to talk about Andreas. Yeah. Uh, he was a great guy and a very serious, uh, hardworking actor. He didn't belong before he got to Babylon 5. He had a full successful career, uh, you know, working at the top of the theater world with Peter Brook in England and stuff like that. So when he came, he was very much of a serious actor. And and I had had, you know, experience in uh, the television world that I, you know, some of what we we had talked about already. And so we, you know, in terms of playing adversarial roles, we just went out of these two actors. There was nothing hard about it. We, uh, we just played um, two adversaries. What was interesting about it is that over the course of time, we not only had a good working relationship because we were both good, hardworking actors that, that uh, liked each other, and you know that's usually uh, usually happens on series if you're lucky. Yeah, we actually became friends, which I, we were really lucky, you know, and that was because Andreas was such an open person and you know kind of just took me in as a friend, and so um, I think it all add it all added. That that we really were friends, that we genuinely liked each other, but had to play people who, uh, you know, at times hated each other, um, but then bounced into some, um, you know, uh, begrudging respect and friendship for each other. Uh, all ended up showing up because of our relationship outside. He was a really extraordinary guy, and uh, 
a really terrific person besides a good actor. You know, had a full, rich life outside of that. And I was really lucky to for my time with Andreas Katsouros. You know, for Doug to know it, it was it's just the work of the actor. You know, whatever they ask you to do, basically you get at it, and we'll see how well we can put that together. So that was part of their uh, what what JMS had constructed for the show. That these two characters would be really at each other, but at the same time have some sort of uh, connection yeah. going on in terms of respect for each other. So, great. Yeah. And um nothing good but good good memories about Andreas, that's all. Yeah. And listener Ben Sutherland was curious if you could compare and contrast your experiences working on Babylon five versus sliders as far as like sci fi series. Well, um <laughs> that's a little more difficult because uh you know, it's not it's it's there's not much as the old high school teachers used to say, compare and contrast, right? Sure. Uh there's more contrast than there is to compare. Other than the fact that there were two sci-fi series, uh, I was in a completely different spot on Sliders. I was coming into an already established show, a show that was uh, in some sense nearing the end of uh, its run, I mean, in a real sense, I guess. And um, so I was a guest actor trying to find my way within that and trying to figure out my relationship. People were really open and, and uh, welcoming to me. But... Um, that's a completely different process than what was going on with Babylon 5. Babylon 5, having a long run, meaning three or four or five seasons in a show, like you know, like MacGyver had, for instance, yeah. you really do, at some point, really start to get all the benefits of this long-run experience. And, you know, as I said, the crew working together, the cast working together, the writers understanding the characters, and it starts to get to be pretty smooth and really enjoyable. And you start doing, you know, the work becomes easier and maybe hopefully better and more creative. Yeah. Spiders was, uh, again, I was sort of uh, walk, wandering through the dark as a guest actor. When you go on as a guest, you want to try to get a feel for what's happening with the show and uh, what part you're playing in the story, the single story or the little story line that I had, and uh, just find your way within that. So, yeah, most, mostly contrast uh, sure. than compare to Babylon 5, you know? It was a very different experience, really good experience, and I enjoyed it, but really... Um, and Ben had also wondered what inspired the Londo accent. Well, there's, I, I, I've told this story before, and sometimes I feel like I can't believe that anybody has heard it. And I and I do have to laugh. I, I said to you earlier in this interview that uh, Babylon Five is so long ago, and Londo's creation is so long ago that I, when I when I meet, I haven't been to a convention in a year or so, but when I go, there's always someone who does a Londo impression, and they do it much better than I can do it now. So <laughs> it's funny. Uh, I don't. I don't have to worry. It has its own legs, as they say. Yeah. It will. The Londo accent will continue. Thank God. Um, people talk to their dogs and their wives and their husbands like Londo. <laughs> it turns out. So, but you know, uh, the the story behind it that I feel like I've told too many times already, but I'll tell again is that I had just done a play in Los Angeles. Uh, it was uh, Tennessee Williams like Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. People like Chris Tiali and Jim Morrison and um, Pat Hingle. Uh, we're in it, and I had worked really hard. It takes place in the South and uh, in the fifties, and I had worked really hard on a Memphis accent, uh, basically Elvis Presley's accent, right? And um, you had a you know good teacher and all that. And for the most part, I got really good reviews. But like all actors, the one bad review was the one that um, stayed in my mind the longest. And that sure. one person said, "Oh, that wasn't a very good accent. He was good, but I didn't like his accent." 
So I was still stinging from that when the Babylon 5 script came, and I asked the casting people to get a hold of the writers and producers and ask them what they would like this alien to sound like. I had never played an alien before. Um, and they got back and said, oh, you can make him sound like whatever you want him to sound like. You know, you, you know that choice is yours. At which point I realized, wow, I'm going to get an opportunity here to make up an accent that no reviewer will ever be able to say to me, that's a bad Centauri accent, <laughs> because I am the first Centauri. <laughs> Everybody has to line up behind me, right? So I'm you're deciding Centauri. the accent for all these other actors now. You got it. And no one else really could do it. I, I guess the guy Bill Forward who said Reefa gave it a go. I know Stephen tried for, I think, a little bit in his first uh, audition, but, uh, you know, couldn't do it. I had made it up out of whole cloth purposely to, uh, you know, with that idea that it's going to be my accent. I, I, they had given me little fangs, and I did wear those through the whole, you know, little mouthpiece. So I, I added a little Transylvania, and my grandmother was Slovakia, Czechoslovakian, or from Slovakia, so I used her sounds a little, so he's a little Eastern European, but I was spending many vacations in Ireland at the time, so I used all Irish rhythms for him. Anyway, it was made up made up completely of whole cloth by me, and as I say, I'm the first Centauri, so I did the perfect Centauri accent, didn't I? Yeah. Huh? Um, I think we've covered all the ground uh, that we hit on the first time, um, and I just want to thank you. I can't thank you enough for, for uh, coming Patrick, back. So, so happy to do it, and um, I hope we did cover uh, all of it. And, you know, the stories came out the way you wanted. It was such a great pleasure to do the uh, interview. Thanks for uh, you know taking the time to get a hold of me. This is uh, great fun. Yeah, I, I God appreciate knows it. if there's another technical glitch. I guess we could do this one more time. I don't know. <laughs> I, I hope it doesn't come to that. I think I think we're solid Me on this too, one. Me too, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell, no, you know what we'll do if we do it again? You you will just tell the stories because you've heard them all now twice, and I'll interview you. How's I'll, that I'll send you the questions, and I'll I'll try and do a Londo accent for all the answers. Yeah, that's right. Of course. And, and once again, prove anybody can do a better Londo accent than me at this point. <laughs> uh, all right, Patrick. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. I just really appreciate that Peter Jurisic uh, came on the show. It was that it was a really great interview. He's a really nice guy. Very uh, nice guy. I I'm always glad that these people are are coming to be on our show and have such great stories to tell. And his his especially his kind of really heartfelt story about uh, uh, Andreas on Katsulis, on, yeah, yeah, on Babylon Five. Like, because is he because Andreas was also I believe on Star Trek: Next Generation as kind of a on again off again antagonist and. Uh, I can't say enough good things about him on the interview. I'm really glad he was part of the show. Yeah. So uh, if you're listening, thank you again so much for, for coming on the show, Peter. And uh, maybe if we move on to some other series, maybe we can do Hill Street Blues next. Ooh, yeah. Have back on every <laughs> week. <laughs> so thank you again. I, I remember this episode as one of the most memorable ones, not because it's good, just because of the ants. It really freaks me out. Like, uh, I this is a weird side story, but I remember as a kid, my friend had like a whole. We found a whole trail of ants going into his house, and they were going into a hole. And I thought, oh, you know what we'll do? We'll look at the garden hose, and we'll just flood the hole. But man, if that didn't just piss off the ants to the nth degree, yeah, and they just came flooding out. It was like 
black oil, all these ants coming out of the hole from the water. Oh, man. And they, they had nowhere to go, so they went deeper into the house, and now we're infesting the house. Oh, man. So we just made it worse. Yeah. And, uh, and like, I was like, oh, man. So I remember that so clearly from my childhood. Yeah. And I watched this episode of MacGyver, and it just makes me think of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, ants are pretty terrifying in those kind of numbers. Yeah, yeah, large numbers. I mean, like I said, I've had them... I've had like a like I don't know you call them a swarm when they're on the ground. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what a group of ants is called. But I've had them inside my house in in quantities that are frightening to me. That's why I think this episode just sticks with me for that reason yeah. alone. All right, ant stories. Well, I think that about wraps up Trumbo's world. Um, I hope you enjoyed the show. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Phoenix Foundation Podcast. And, of course, we can always be reached on our website at phoenixfoundationpodcast.com. Also, if you're enjoying the show, feel free to review us on iTunes. Be sure to tune in next week when we're going to be covering Season 1, Episode 7, Last Stand. And yeah. Thank you again for listening. Yeah.